Okay. So, if you're able, would you please remain standing for the word of the Lord from Ephesians 5, 15 through 20. Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. right. Good morning. If you have your Bible, you might want to get it out. We're going to be looking at quite a few verses in, um, in Ephesians chapter 4 and 5. Um, it's quite a weekend. You had May the 4th, then you had Cinco de Mayo, and yesterday was Derby Day, which no one cares about around here, but it's fine. Big day, May 7th today, Sunday. Hope you had a good weekend, beautiful weather. Um, looking forward to being together at the park after lunch, or after service. Let's pray, and then we'll jump in. Lord, we come together now before you, and we ask that you would make us grateful. You'd put thanksgiving in our heart to you for all that you are and all that you've done, the world that you have made, the people you have made, and that we would receive everything as a gift. Open our eyes and our hearts in this moment. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Right after Kristen and I got married, we were living in Texas, and we had a little apartment, and we, like any good newlyweds, were like, we're going we're gonna to make our own dinner. This is going to be great. We've never had to do this before. We had parents. We had college cafeterias. So we're going to make dinner. So we got out our good, good trusty friend, the Pioneer Woman's cookbook. And we turned to the lasagna. I think it was lasagna, right? Yeah, lasagna. And we go, making about, we go about making this lasagna, and it has what appears to us to be a large amount of garlic in it. So we get out our garlic, and it said, I think it said, two cloves of garlic. Do you know what a clove of garlic is? We did not know. We, we got to one and a half bulbs, and we thought to ourselves, wow, this feels like a lot of garlic. So we stopped. We stopped short of the prescribed amount of garlic, and we made the lasagna, and it was barely edible. Barely edible. It was... We knew that garlic was good. We were really bad at using garlic. Do you see the difference? You see, we had the recipe. We had a recipe. We knew the facts. But the goal of having edible, desirable food, we still lacked something in getting to that goal. And I've learned since then that garlic actually takes quite a bit of wisdom to use. 
to know when to use it cooked, when to use it raw, when to roast it, when to peel it, when to... What to do with it is actually takes quite a bit of knowledge. Good food, making good food, eating good food, requires more than just a recipe. Just because you have a recipe in front of you, if you've ever tried this, you have a recipe, you're like, this looks amazing. You make the recipe, you're like, this is terrible. Just because you have a recipe doesn't make food. Last week, I told you that all Christian ethics boil down to one sentence. Love your neighbor as yourself. And this ethic is much more than following rules. That's what we talked about last week. Resisting the list. Just because you have a recipe of rules does not mean you will love your neighbor. In fact, this is what Jesus is talking about when he says to the, to the Pharisees in Matthew 26, Woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe the mint and the dill and the cumin. In other words, you follow the rules, but you have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. Those are not rules to follow. Those are the weightier matters, the things that lie underneath the law. They're not rules. Loving your neighbor requires more than knowing facts. Right? I, I can know that salt is a necessary nutrient for my children to have in their bodies, and yet if I put a cup of salt in front of them to eat, they will not get it. They will spit it out. Right? It requires more than knowledge about things. It also requires more than just a thought. Right? We often say it's the thought that counts. It's like if your kid needs surgery on his arm and you forget to take him to the hospital, it's not the thought that counts, right? Action is needed. You can't just think about calling 911 when someone needs help. You actually have to do it. Love requires action. You also have this vision, in a, I think it's an Americanized version of love that's kind of just a do-no-harm love. Just love, love is just sort of staying out of your neighbor's way. That's not a biblical version of love. And when we put all these things together, we get this question. What does it mean to love your neighbor? Okay, I'm good with loving your neighbor, but how do I know? If I don't have a list of rules to follow, how do I know what is good or bad? How do I know what it means to actually love the people in my life? And this is the question Paul answers here in today's text. He's summarizing. This is, I think, his concluding paragraph, his concluding argument, starting in chapter 4, verse 1, going all the way through to 520. This is his concluding argument. Listen to this from verse 15. This is what Tara read. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. It echoes what he said in verse 10. Walk as children of light and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. You see these words, carefully, wise, understanding, discernment. It's what Kristen and I lacked in handling the garlic. It's what many of us lack in trying to love our neighbor. You see, wisdom is much more than information. It's skill. It's being able to perceive and respond in ways that are productive and helpful. To discern something is to understand what is best and act on it. And that's what's required. Jamie Smith is uh, one of my favorite authors, and he says this, Being Christian is less about building a mountain of Christian knowledge than it is a matter of developing a Christian know-how that intuitively understands the world in light of the fullness of the gospel. In other words, love is much more than following the rules. Love is 
having the wisdom and the skill to actually love your neighbor. Love is discerning what is best for your neighbor and acting on it. That's what love is. So I want to summarize today Ephesians 4, 1 through 520. I want to kind of distill what Paul's talking about. And I want to give you a simple framework for how to know how to love your neighbor. Now, I want to repeat that. That's a simple framework. Actually loving your neighbor, not simple at all. Christian ethics, ethics of all kind, not simple at all, very complex. But the framework from Jesus and Paul is actually incredibly simple. How to love your neighbor as yourself. And I want to give you three aspects of discernment that we must have in order to love our neighbor, in order to decide in any given moment what it is to love one another. Here's the first thing. The first thing it means to love is that we are able to discern our neighbor. The first aspect, the first thing you have to discern is your neighbor himself or herself. Here's Paul, verse 1, chapter 4. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Right? What is humility but humility towards another person? What is patience other than patience towards another person? What is bearing with besides bearing with another person? In verse 7 of chapter 4, he says, But grace was given to each one of us. And in verse 16, he says that the whole body is held together by every joint when each part is working properly. Each part in this context is a unique person, a specific named individual. In verse 25, therefore having put away falsehood, let each one of us speak the truth with his neighbor. Okay? This isn't just speaking the truth in broadcast form. This is speaking the truth to specific other people. This is very against, like, truth spoken on social media. It's sort of spoken to the vast void. I was listening to a podcast yesterday, and somebody was saying, like, I tweet about this stuff, but I literally have no idea who this is for or who's reading this. It's sort of just sent off into the wonderful world of the internet. But to speak truth is to speak truth to another person. Let the thief no longer steal, in verse 28, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands, right? We talked about this. Don't steal, but labor with your hands in order so that you can share with someone in need, with a specific person. You see, the opposite of stealing is not philanthropy. It's sharing with a person. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, verse 29, but only what is helpful for building others up as fits the occasion. You see this over and over, other people. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger, verse 31, and clamor and slander be put away from you along with malice, right? Malice is feelings of hostility and strong dislike with a possible implication of desiring to do harm. That's malice. What do you feel malice towards except another person? This isn't talking about malice against mosquitoes and canned tuna and the Atlanta Braves. It's talking about malice towards people, right? Towards specific people. Be kind to one another. Don't just be kind. Be kind to one another, to specific people. You see, to love, we must know who these specific people are. This this question you know well from this parable, 
the Pharisee comes up to Jesus, and he, Luke records in chapter 10, but the Pharisee, desi- desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Right, he's trying to get out of it. He's like, who's my neighbor? But I want to ask you, who is your neighbor? Who are they? They are made in the image of God. Every person you come in contact with has a unique story, a unique family, unique trauma, unique pain, is as complex as you are. I sit in the airport and I just watch people walk by for hours. You can just watch different people walk by for hours. Every single one of those people has a story as complex and as nuanced and as difficult and as painful as yours. Every person In Colossians, Paul says something similar. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Why? So that you may know how to answer each person. There's this beautiful quote. I want you to hear this. This is Abraham Joshua Heschel writes this. A human being has not only a body, but also a face. A face cannot be grafted or interchanged. A face is a message A face speaks often unbeknownst to the person. Is not the human face a living mixture of mystery and meaning? We are all able to see it and are all unable to describe it. Is it not a strange marvel that among so many hundreds of millions of faces, no two faces are alike? And that no face remains quite the same for more than one instant? The most exposed part of the body, it is the least describable. A synonym for an incarnation of uniqueness. Can we look at a face as if it were a commonplace? This is every person that you meet. And here's the reality. You cannot love someone you do not know. You cannot love someone you do not know. The opposite is also true. Someone who doesn't know you, they can't love you. Your ability to love is capped at your ability to know someone else. There's so many times when I've sat in judgment on someone until I heard their story. And all of a sudden I understand. Have you had this experience? Why would they think that? Why would they do that? Why would they be that? They're wrong, wrong, wrong. And you sit and listen to their story and you're like, oh, now I understand. Now I know. Now I'm able to love because love is never abstract. It's always concrete. Random acts of kindness, philanthropy, it's all fine, but it's not biblical love. Biblical love is directed at individual people. Here's three things that we have to be in order to love people. The first one is we have to be present. The word neighbor literally means the one who is near. We have to be present. And so my question for you is, are you close enough to people in order to love them? Like literally physically close enough. Do you spend enough time with people in order to love them? Love requires, John got me on this phrase this week, proximity over time. Proximity over time. We see modern world is opposed to this. We like efficiency and independence and freedom and technology. We kind of want to stay at a safe distance from people. The less I know you, the less I have to love you. The less I have to bear with you. The less I have to be patient with you. Love requires proximity. This is why we kind of flit about from church to church, from group to group, 
from job to job, from home to home. We, Chris and, and I buy a lot of stuff on Facebook Marketplace, and there's this one, one of the best things we ever bought was this chair. We found it. This, it was a beautiful chair. It was kind of brand new. And uh, I, I drove out to the house to, to pick it up. And it was this giant, probably close to $2 million custom-built farmhouse in Waxhaw. And the husband had built it himself over like five years. And they were moving because they're like, yeah, we just think we'd probably rather live at the beach. This is, this is modern life. We just go from place to place seeking something rather than being in proximity with the same group of people over time. See, this is the undergirding of all of our community group philosophy. Proximity over time. You need to be in a group of people with proximity over time in order to be able to love. Without that, there's no love. But more than just being present, we actually need to be, number two, curious. Curious. Knox, he loves Curious George. Always gets George into trouble, but it always ends well. A little moral. Curiosity equals good. Right, each week, I come into my community group meeting, and we ought to be curious. Mike comes in and says, what, what's going on with Mike this week, right now? How does Mike feel this moment? How did you experience what happened this afternoon? Curious, asking questions. Day by day, week by week, curiosity is essential for love. And yet we're kind of trained to be disinterested, disdainful, dismissive. We, we love to typecast people. You see somebody do one thing, and you're like, oh, they're that kind of person. That's the opposite of curiosity. I had a, a boss when I worked at camp, and we would drive these uh, F-350s with a 20-foot gooseneck trailer around the country. We were going to our staff training for camp. We had two of these, two trucks and two trailers. We were driving across the highway. We get to a toll booth, and my boss is driving one of the trucks, and one of the other staff members is driving the other truck. And as we get into the toll booth, one of the, tr the guy, the staff member driving the truck, sort of bumps the trailer into each other. It didn't really hurt anything, but one of the trailers got really scraped up. And for the rest of that staff person's existence in our organization, the boss only knew him as the guy that wrecked the trailer. That was it. It was such a good picture to me of what we do to each other all the time. Oh, you're that person. You're the guy that did that one. I had this one experience with you, and that's who you are from now forward. There's a great book called The Curious Christian by Barnabas Piper, and he says, People change constantly, but we often settle for knowing someone well and then failing to realize that they are a different person than they were yesterday. We think we want a steady relationship with a static being, and so we choose to view others that way. We refuse to recognize the change in them, but in the end, it leads us to boredom and resentment. How many relationships have ended that way? Because we've refused to be curious about who the person is today. Marriages, friendships, churches fall apart from lack of curiosity, lack of questions. Barnabas concludes, in short, curiosity turns us outward away from selfishness. Our base desire is to turn every relationship to our benefit, to get what we can out of it. Curiosity at its best undermines this sinful desire because it locks in on the needs, interests, and desires of the other person. Present, curious, third, attentive. 
We must be attentive. It's good to ask questions. You got to actually listen to the answers. Be attentive. Be aware. This is necessary to love other people. We have to know someone in order to love them. Listen carefully to what people say, how they feel, what they look like, what their experience has been, right? And we're just distracted. We favor efficiency over waiting and listening or just consumption. We consume people the way we consume media. Stopping to pay attention. In our community group, we spend 45 minutes every single meeting asking, what is going on in your life right now? And then listening to the answers. And this presence and curiosity and attentiveness, this is the fuel for love. To behold a person that God made and loves. Right? Jesus looks at the crowd and he says, see all these flowers? Do you not know that you are more valuable than they are? This is human persons. The image of God is not just that people have inalienable rights, but that they have beauty and creativity and the, the life of God in them, or at least the capacity for the life of God. Eight billion utterly unique human beings in the world. We're never going to love people unless we are in awe that God made them, that person. Not just human beings in general, but that person that's sitting across from us. And we will never love another person until we're thankful for their existence. That God made them. That we're in their presence now. You'll never love a person you're not thankful for. I think about this with my kids. Like the moments that I'm best at loving my kids is when I'm sort of in awe and wonder at the person that God made them, that God allowed me to help participate in creating this human being. That's when I'm best at parenting my children rather than when I'm trying to get them to be and do something different. I want to ask you, who has God placed you in proximity to? Do you know them? Are you curious about them? This is not a rhetorical question. Do you know them? Go home today, write the five people that you are in closest proximity with and list what you know about them. Find the gaps and go and ask them. And remember that they're different today than they were yesterday. Curious, attentive, proximity over time. We have to discern who our neighbor is. That's the, that's the first part. But secondly, we don't just have to discern the person. We need to discern the moment. Paul says in verse 15, Look carefully then how you walk, not as, wise, but as, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time. And I've, I've often heard this sort of as just a, like a productivity verse. Make the best use of your time. Don't waste. Don't waste things. It's not less than that, but this verse is so much more. Okay, there's two words in Greek for time. The one is chronos. You recognize this word, chronos? Time. It just means like time, block of time. There's another word, it's kairos. It means more specific time, opportunity. This is what Paul is saying. Make the most of every opportunity. Capitalize on this particular moment. Seize the day. Look, this moment right here will never be again. 
You don't have an opportunity to redo what's happening in this moment. This is a unique moment. We need to ask, what time is it? Right, Ecclesiastes, there's a time for everything. What is this particular moment for? What is best right now? What is best in this church service? What is best in this meal? What is best on this date? We say history repeats itself, and that's sort of true. But in another very real sense, history never repeats itself. Every single moment is new. Every single church service we have is new and different and unique. Different people in the room, different moment, different things. We all, this is a very different, unique moment every single Sunday. Paul's invitation here is to timeliness. You know what, timely? To do something occurring at a favorable or useful time. You know when someone makes a joke and it's sort of ill-timed? This is the opposite of that. That perfect moment. And Paul, Paul has this all throughout chapter 4 and 5, and he uses these two words, needed and fitting. Be angry and do not sin, in verse, chapter 4, verse 26. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity. Take advantage of this particular opportunity to, to not let the devil take opportunity. Right? The, the word opportunity there is the precise moment. Do not allow this precise moment to go to the devil. In 427, again, about stealing, you've seen, this is probably the seventh time I've quoted this verse. It's a good verse. Don't steal, but labor, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. This is a word about what is needed in this particular moment. He uses the same word in the next verse, as fits the occasion but it's the same word, as fits the need. What makes words good? Because they fit the need of the moment. Kristen and I were watching Downton Abbey, I guess it was a week and a half ago, and there's this little moment that was so perfect for this. Um, Daisy's like the little, uh, she's the cook, the cook's helper, and she just, she, she finds out that she passes these tests and she's going to go and be a teacher. And as she, when she finds out, she says, oh my God! And Mrs. Hughes says to her, I will thank you not to take the name of the Lord in vain. And Daisy says, I hope it's not in vain. I need all the help I can get. You see that? Words matter for the effect that they have. What is needed now for your kids? What is needed now for your friends? What is needed now for your actual neighbor? The idea of being fitting, Paul says in chapter 5, verse 3, no sexual immorality as is proper. In verse 4, let there be no crude joking which is out of place. You see this, it's everywhere. Discerning the moment. We can do the same thing with the moment as we can with, our, with other people. Being present to the moment, fully present in the now. Not thinking about then or there or forward, but here, now. Fully present, curious, what is going on right now? Attentive, paying attention, noticing, and discerning. And all of this leads to being thankful for the moment, for this moment, for this moment that God has made. Everything that happens in your life happens in concrete moments that God has made. This is the day the Lord has made. This is the moment the Lord has made. Rejoice and be glad. 
you will never be loving in a moment that you're not thankful for. Really like my the boys have been playing soccer. I've always loved soccer. Soccer is often referred to as the beautiful game. It's a very simple game. The the rules are actually offsides notwithstanding. It's a very simple game. It's a very simple objective. Take the ball, get it in the net. It's very simple. But being good at soccer requires much more than knowing the rules. Requires much more than knowing the names of your teammate. Requires much more than knowing where the edge of the field is. It requires knowing at any individual precise moment what the best thing to do is. That is what the invitation from Paul is here. To understand, discern the moment, and know what is best for the specific neighbor that you're with then. There's one more thing we have to discern. Discerning our neighbor, discerning the moment, this leads to discerning the Spirit of God. Do not be foolish, but understand, verse 17, what the will of the Lord is. And for many of us, we think the will of God is just his law, his list of rules. We think of God as unchanging, as some sort of like static rule giver. That's just not the way the Bible talks about God. God is a dynamic, interacting person. Verse 10, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. To love our neighbor, we have to listen to the Holy Spirit. Doing what is good, doing what is loving in this moment is not math. It's not science. <laughs> it's art and relationship, listening to the Spirit of God. I discovered this really cool little thing here. John, in John 16, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and justice, right? Convict the world. You're familiar with this verse in John? Well, we just read in Ephesians chapter 5, 13, but when anything is exposed by the light, and that's the same word that John, Jesus used to talk about what the Spirit is going to do. The Spirit is going to come convict. And Paul says that anything that is convicted by the light becomes visible. It's a very active invitation. The Spirit is the one who illumines how to love our neighbors in this moment. And there's this invitation to be sensitive moment by moment to the Spirit of God. To love our neighbor, it requires wisdom. How do we know what's good? How do we know what is love? We discern our neighbor. We discern the moment. We discern the Spirit of God. We're present and curious and attentive to people and moments in God. And all of this leads Paul down to this final little summary verse. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's not a lot of wiggle room in verse 20, is there? Right? Giving thanks, it's the verb eucharisto. Giving thanks always and in everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Loving other people exists in a life 
and a heart of gratitude. Love grows out of gratitude for the grace, the awe and wonder and joy of what we've been given by God who made us. I read this definition of gratitude this week. Gratitude is associated with a personal benefit that was not intentionally sought after, deserved, or earned, but rather because of the good intentions of another person. Christianity is about responding to God's grace. How? With gratitude that overflows into love of our neighbor. This is Paul's invitation. Be, grat be, be, be gratitude. Be thankful. Have a life full of gratitude. I don't know if you've made this connection before. <laughs> Loving your neighbor is rooted in gratitude for what God is doing for you in this moment. Being Christian means being filled with gratitude and out of that flowing into being a loving person. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for the world that you have made, the people that you have made, the salvation that you have provided, working to renew and restore all things. May we have eyes to see it, to see it in our own lives, to see it in the lives of our friends and our neighbors. Let us be present, let us be curious, let us be attentive to people, to moments, to your spirit. That out of that would flow from us a life of love for one another. I pray this in the name of Christ.